This is Chapter 52 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Cherkovich. Oh, sorry. Uh, We're just excited to be marking a year of podcasts. A year. Anyway, we're going to be celebrating the milestone the only way we know how with a couple of really good books. And this week, both of our selections focus on true crime stories. The first is a behind-the-scenes story of the Miami Hotel and Club that inspired the film Scarface. Then we revisit a murder that shocked New York City at the turn of the last century. During the 1970s and 80s, Miami was ground zero on the war on drugs. And at its center was the Mutiny, a hotel and club in Coconut Grove that attracted all sorts of characters who flocked there to snort lines of cocaine. The wild, true story is detailed in the book Hotel Scarface. Our Paul Murnane recently spoke with author Robin Farzad about it. The economy was booming. The most expensive cars were gliding to the curb. And customers drank the most expensive champagne. And we are not talking about Wall Street last year. We're talking about the Miami scene of the 1970s and 80s, and specifically a place called Club Mutiny. And what was fueling it all was, uh, frankly, the coke trade, the drug trade back then. And the book Hotel Scarface takes us back to those days of South Florida's uh, hot-running narco economy. Author Robin Farzad is on the line this morning. How are you? How are you, Paul? Happy New Year. Thank you very much, and I appreciate you doing this again. I will confess right at the top of this that we had had a conversation before, and I red-faced called you up and said, hey, guess what? The recording didn't turn out, so we're here you are again. So we appreciate you doing this for a second time. I, I, lo- I love you so much, I'd do it a fourth time. You can have me on every month about my book, as long as we still sell copies. You know? <laughs> it's that WCBS podcast love that keeps us going. Uh, yeah. Tell us about uh, the, the whole scene, and I, I'm fascinated specifically about the, the club mutiny uh, and how you came to realize that the, this building that you saw growing up in Miami was an important address in that Miami scene we were talking about. You were just out, uh, what, selling lemonade, right? Yeah, I had a job in high school selling frozen lemonade, and right before I left for college up north, I found an ab- abandoned building in 1994, um, uh, with various things going on, uh, you know, in in terms of the wreckage. And long story short is just a a little superficial research, and you realize that this is the closest thing that Miami had to its own Studio 54 uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. It was really where uh, cocaine met the Cold War, met reefer madness and the sexual revolution. And you find it in so many police reports and memoirs that there had to have been something else to it. And I've, I've spent more than two decades, you know, uh, Captain Ahab, like chasing that Moby Dick. <laughs> uh, this club uh, was opened. Um, it was a motel, actually a hotel. It was a, it was a, it was a nightclub. It was a restaurant, but it opened, I guess, essentially as a bar in the late 1960s. So it had very humble roots and there was a New Jersey guy that kind of got this whole thing going, right? That's right. The late Burton Goldberg was a property developer who actually built it. It was called the Sailboat Bay Apartments. And if you know anything about Miami, Coconut Grove, the closest approximation to it, it's kind of like Greenwich Village in Miami. It's the old leafy, hippie-ish uh, outpost just a few miles south of downtown Miami. And it was where, I mean, you had wild peacocks running around, people sunning topless. It's, it's where uh, the Doors' Jim Morrison famously exposed himself to an audience. 
um, really was not a dangerous place. And he built this luxury condo in the late 60s. And by the early 70s, a lot of things were happening in the economy that kind of forced his hand to put in a club and a bar in the, in the lobby. Namely, you had the perfect season Miami Dolphins and all these celebrities coming to town. You had the oil shock and, and all these Venezuelans and golf shakes traveling through Miami who wanted a place to party and fornicate and drink and spend money. And so he built this place and, and then he added a disco to it. And, and throughout the 70s, you know, a, a lot of stars aligned for it to become the hottest spot in Miami and probably in Pan America, if you look at the entire you know, sub-hemisphere. And you were talking about the Cold War component of things. Uh, there were Cuban exiles who knew the uh, every inch of the coastline, knew how to get things in and out. They're in the mix. The narco economy starts to rise. There's this incredible desire, this, this, this thirst that could never really be satisfied for drugs in the 70s and 80s. And this all came together around this place. Yeah, and that's why there's something more to it. Like, you know, some people travel to... Um, Scotts, I'm not Scottsdale, what is it, uh, Sedona, Arizona, and they call this a special vortex area. It has a spirituality to it. I'm convinced that there's something to this address, kind of this, this, this polarity going on that drew all these people there. Um, I believe that uh, more than accidentally, you had a lot of founding figures of, of certain key events in, in the Cold War. I mean, outside of that, like Republican operatives, uh, Watergate operatives, uh, who were involved in the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was our abortive attempt to take out Fidel Castro in the early 60s. Um, you know, before I get too wonky about it, the long, long and short of it is that you had thousands and thousands of Cuban exiles in Miami in the 1960s and 70s who were ticked off that there wasn't a rematch to take out Fidel Castro. And so what they did instead was take all of the, the, the seafaring um, an evasion skill that was taught to them by the CIA in Miami, which was huge in the 1960s. And they turned it into smuggling pot uh, during reefer madness in the 70s. And that brought in a lot of cash. But then people realized that cocaine, ounce for ounce, pound for pound, was far, far, far more profitable. And everybody was talking about cocaine by 1976 and 1977. And then the, the Colombians come to town, it becomes violent, and it all explodes by the turn of the decade, and you end up having Miami on the cover of, of Time magazine as, as paradise lost, as a, as a failed state. Did it take law enforcement long to figure out that there was a lot going on around yeah. Club Mutiny? Did they, did they catch on fairly early that if they kept their eyes and their ears open around this place, uh, that they could learn a lot? I found uh, the mutiny mentioned in law enforcement circles as early as the early 70s. I think there was something called Operation Leprechaun, where the IRS was trying to find mafia-linked uh, you know, city council and mayoral people who would hang out at the mutiny and take bribes there. And uh, you know, cops and law enforcement, they called them the, the tres letras, the three letters is what the Cubans call them, FBI, DEA, IRS, you know, uh, MPD, Miami Police Department. They were always on my case there. They realized that this was actually too valuable an ecosystem, this hotel and club, just to go in and bust because you needed informants. You need to play people against one another. On top of the fact that there was so much cash that was corrupting law enforcement and the judicial system that if you were a straight cop, you had to pick your battles. I mean, if I wanted to find a, a, a murderous, you know, a serial killer who hung out at this club, I could look the other way while a largely nonviolent cocaine smuggler was giving me information about him. And you would realize that there were kind of crisscrossing levels of information. You had 
every doper was informing for one level of law enforcement or was working for the FBI or for the CIA. And that was just the cost of doing business in, in Miami in the 70s and 80s. And you were surprised also by how uh, the respectable members of society uh, were willing to kind of put aside any concerns they had about the drug trade and uh, do business with these people, help them set up their accounts, help them handle their monies, sell them the things they needed, the luxury goods, and so on. You know, we did in 1980 in Miami, had we had a $5 billion cash surplus in the Federal Reserve System there, which was more than all the other Federal Reserve banks combined. I mean, you know the New York Fed down on Wall Street. I mean, that, you're talking Miami versus Wall Street and San Francisco and all these other places combined. We were literally awash in cash, and you had to have a very strong moral compass to kind of turn that cash away. People were showing up at car dealerships and not negotiating prices, asking for three or four Maseratis. People were buying several condos. They were buying horses, horse feed. Uh, money laundering was a, was a bull market. Brickle Avenue, which is kind of the Wall Street of Miami, was just opening up with all these banks that would take your cash and, and scrape a vig off the top. And only when it became really violent and, and murder and bloodlust and violence followed in 81 and 82 did you start to see um, the city kind of really realize that, gosh, we can't have an entire economy based on this madness. Yeah, and that's when it got that's that's when it got just got too hot. By the early to the mid '80s, it was clear that it was all over, and that's when everything kind of fell apart. You knew it couldn't last. Uh, Ronald Reagan's first hundred days in office in 1981. Uh, one of the top things on his agenda was Miami and uh, the South Florida Drug Task Force. He deputized his vice president to prioritize. You know, we we got to take on the war on drugs, which. Sounded great. I mean, they went after some of the most violent people. But another element of the book is that the CIA looked the other way throughout the 1980s, even after this club closed, uh, as certain drug smugglers were kind of given a premier level of membership uh, in the entire uh, uh, you know, law enforcement system. The CIA would look the other way as they uh, brought cocaine up from South America and the planes went back with arms for the Contras, who we were financing uh, and a huge scandal broke out of that in the mid-'80s, the Iran-Contra scandal. And so I was struck by the extent to which the whole war on drugs thing was was just kind of an elaborate ruse. You know, Nancy Reagan would want to show up with her, you know, say-no-to-drugs jacket at these elementary schools in Miami and L.A. And the whole time, right. uh, official branches of government were looking the other way while while cocaine, the, the crisis, just spiraled and it became— yeah a crack epidemic by the late 80s. Yeah, they had a handy little mechanism there, and uh, they had a, a handy tool uh, that they could use, and so they were willing to kind of, as you said, look the other way. Yeah, it was triangular trade, and if you're Willie and Sal, uh, the muchachos, the biggest cocaine dealers in Miami history, you escaped law enforcement for most of the 80s. I mean, the law only caught up to them in the mid-90s because you knew there was a great deal with this whole Iran-Contra arbitrage. I could... I could have these massive planes fly into Miami International Airport uh, with cocaine and, and um, you know, some CIA people would help us send cannons and guns on the way back and look the other way. Um, they call it salutary neglect. I mean, you, you could also call it huge, wide-scale corruption. The, the people in law enforcement that you uh, spoke to for your book, it's been years now. It's been 30 years. Um, are they voicing regret about the kind of hands-off attitude uh, on this place? No, because there were so many things in place kind of outside of the club. We had we had, had a huge scandal break in uh, late 1980s Miami called the Miami River Cops uh, scandal, where it, it was revealed that there was 
a whole level of rot in the Miami Police Department. All these people were on the take. We realized a lot of these judges, these dopers admit, admitted to me that they were taking bags of, of cash, you know, in, in public brown paper grocery bags to these judges. And the entire system was bought. And what's amazing to me is while the inception of this mutiny story might be the 70s and 80s and Hotel Scarface, my book, a lot of that corruption persisted well into the mid-90s, well into present day Miami. There were, there were things put in place that you just couldn't reverse. A whole legacy of, of immigrants who were here who didn't trust the law, who believed that they were above the law. And you know, shutting down one nefarious kind of notorious den of iniquity wasn't going to end that entire era. Do you see this this ever happening again? It's very interesting coming off what we've been through, for example, with Bitcoin. I see that things can get frothy, as things are often described in economics. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if there is any kind of scenario in which you see, um, you know, this kind of uh, craziness could repeat. If you combine cash and sex and violence, it turns... Some people, obviously, and I, I talk to dopers, many many of whom spent 30 years in prison, they can't believe the people they were um, in the early 80s. One of these guys uh, you know, was a massive cocaine dealer, became an informant. He had leopards. He had uh, all sorts of wildlife on his, in his mansion in Coconut Grove. He can't believe he led that life. He drove around in a Benz with a chimp, uh, was chomping on a cigar and wearing a gold chain. I mean, cocaine, as... as uh, as it was said by um, the late Rick James, is a hell of a drug. Rick James was also a regular there, by the way. Um, I don't know. If, look, if Bitcoin, the, the riches were crazy. But if you mix sex and violence and a deluge of 120,000 uh, boat lifters uh, and race riots, could you have a repeat of Miami? I really doubt it. It was uh, one of the rare instances in U.S. history where we had a failed state on our hands, where people really worried that Miami was going to kind of break off and go helter-skelter into the Atlantic. Yeah, it was just kind of slip into the water and kind of float away the thing, the way things were going then. But that'd be a great screenplay, Paul. I mean, Bitcoin Cowboys, you know? Yeah. Can you, can you imagine? We should get together. <laughs> I, 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 have, I have a pitch session already going in the back of my mind right now. <laughs> uh, the book's been out a while now. Uh, what's the reaction, Ben? Are you hearing from people uh, that uh, are not happy about what they're seeing in the book? Or are people saying at this point, yeah, you, 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 you nailed it? For the most part, it's the it's the latter reaction. I mean, look, this is it's believe it or not, 1980 was 38 years ago. Uh, statute of limitations has expired for most of these people if they want to confess to stealing something or <laughs> drug use. Obviously, it's not the case for murder. Um, I had to be very careful in reporting this book and kind of observing the level, varying levels of confidence for people. Like, don't tell my mistress I talked to you. Don't use my name if you say this. Um, the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive and people thanking me that, wow, you really kind of you, you occupied an omniscient voice to kind of uh, put yourself as a fly on the wall and, and bring this place back to life. It's only kind of alive in, in oral history and in legend and in myth. And uh, we uh, within a month of the book coming out, we got a deal with uh, Stone Village Entertainment to pursue a cable series that further lets us unpack some of these characters and 
and stories that I wasn't able to fit into the book. Yeah, well, there are so many stories, and there are so many interesting things. There's a lot you can do with with a series, and and who knows, maybe even a couple more books out of this whole experience. You never know. I don't think I want. I don't think I want to write anything ever again, sir. But thank you. I'll come <laughs> on your show every. I'll come on your show daily, but I'm not going to write a book. No way. <laughs> the book is Hotel Scarface. It is a great read about what was going on in Miami in the 1970s and the 1980s. And the author of the book, Robin Farzad, is on the line this morning. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Anytime, Paul. Our next book centers around the real-life case of an actress who claims she was raped by a prominent and wealthy man. And I know what you're thinking. This must be a book about Harvey Weinstein. It's not. In fact, our story takes place at the turn of the last century. We get the details from Simon Botts, author of The Girl on the Velvet Swing. The story of Evelyn Nesbitt and Stanford White is New York City legend. But for those who aren't familiar, give us a little bit of a background on their story and what happened. Well, there are three characters in the story. Um, the most well-known is Stanford White, who is uh, very much a celebrity architect at the turn of the century. And he's a partner in the firm McKim Mead and White, which is responsible for, which was responsible for many of the most famous landmarks. Stanford White designed the Washington Square Arch on Washington Square. He also designed the old Madison Square Garden, which stood on Madison Square at 26th Street. And um, and the firm itself designed the campus for Columbia University uptown and also designed the old Penn Station. The second major character in the story is a chorus girl called Evelyn Nesbitt, and she is 16 years old when she meets Stanford White. And she had just moved to New York City with her mother from Pittsburgh. And she had got a position in as a chorus girl in a musical at the Casino Theater on 39th Street. And the musical was called Floradora, which was a very, very popular musical. It ran, I think, for about two years in New York City. So Evelyn Nesbitt and Stanford White, Stanford White um, maneuvered the interview. He saw Evelyn's picture in the newspapers. He wanted to meet her. He was 47. She was 16. And, um, and according to her later testimony, he invited her to a party at his house on 40, 24th Street, just off Madison Square, she shows up around nine o'clock in the evening thinking that there's going to be other people there, but it turns out that the only other person there is Stanford White. Here they have dinner. He invites her to go on a tour of the house. He offers her a glass of champagne. It's drugged. She falls unconscious and she wakes up much later to discover that she had been raped and she's now naked in bed and Stanford White is next to her naked in bed. And we know all this because um, this was uh, the testimony that came out later in the trial of the third character in the story. And the third character is someone called Harry Thor, who was the son of an extremely wealthy Pittsburgh uh, magnate who owned tens of thousands of acres of land in Western Pennsylvania. 
and was an executive with the Pennsylvania Railroad. And the Thor family had between probably at least $12 million in $1900. So they were extremely wealthy. And, and the rape occurred in 1901. Four years later, Harry met Evelyn. They got married in April 1905. And then in June 1906, all three characters were in the theater, coincidentally, in Madison Square Garden, in the building that Stanford White designed. The Evelyn is there with her husband, Harry. They decide to leave early because the play is not so interesting. And as Evelyn gets to the elevator, she looks behind for her husband and she sees him standing at the front of the theater. And as she looks, he lifts his revolver and shoots Stanford White in the in three times. Two, two bullets hit him in the face. One bullet hit him, hits him in the shoulder and he dies immediately. So that's basically the the first kind of part of this drama. And of course, it doesn't end there because then the district attorney brings Harry Thor to trial. And that trial really has been characterized as the trial of the century. And why did the public find it so captivating? So the thing is, it had all the ingredients of a major sensation because you had Stanford White, who was so well known in New York. I mean, he was. There's really no architect right now in 2018 that could even compare with his fame. And he really was famous because he introduced a lot of European styles, Renaissance styles into American architecture. And the architecture in New York before Stanford White was really rather monotonous. It was just this kind of chocolate brown uh, four-story houses that just spread everywhere. And there were no significant major buildings. And the reason why his buildings were such a great success is because for the first time, New York could begin to rival these European capitals, such as London or Paris or Berlin, in the scale of its architecture. So you have Stanford White has been killed. He's a celebrity. You then have the, the kind of sexual innuendo, the fact that this man had been with such a young girl, 16 years old, the rumors of Stanford White's behavior with other young girls, which was really condemned universally by the public and by the newspapers. And then you have the wealth of Harry Thor, which is a very, his, his wealth was really com comparable to the Rockefellers. And, and so this was a glimpse uh, by the newspapers and by the general public, not just in New York, but throughout the United States, it was a glimpse into a hidden world, a world of the wealthy, of the elite, of the rich, and it was full of scandal. And so it just preoccupied the newspapers like you wouldn't believe. And, there, and the other thing that really surprised me in my research is that there were 14 newspapers in New York City, 14 daily newspapers which by itself is an extraordinary thing. They just had enormous resources. They hired dozens of reporters who were out looking for every kind of detail on this case. And as a consequence, once I got to do my research in the newspapers, then I found this enormous tre treasure trove of uh, material. 
And um, and I think one of the things that makes the book so interesting is the fact that a great deal of conversation was recorded by these newspapers, and I was able to use that conversation in the book. So so that basically is why the, the trial, the first trial and the second trial, was so sensational. What drew you to write about this subject matter? That's a very interesting question, because as a historian, um, I tend to be kind of a perfectionist in the sense that I always look to do the maximum amount of research to track down every single source. And the problem with that is that then it takes forever to write a book. And so I thought I, I moved to New York City in 2006 and I wanted to get uh, a project that was part of New York because that makes it easier to do the research because you presumably have the materials close to hand. And the attraction of this kind of murder case and trial is that it's very well defined. It begins with the crime and it ends with the verdict, whatever the verdict might be. And so you have a very specific time period. You have a very specific subject. And that makes it easier for me to re to restrain myself. It means that I'm not then endlessly chasing down one thread after another. I just focus on that period. I focus on the characters and then I can write the book. So, and and of course, the other thing that was attractive to me was that uh, there have been several books before my book came out. But I think the way I do the research, which is just going to those old newspapers, newspapers that nobody now remembers. I mean, who remembers the New York Morning Telegraph or the Evening Telegram? Those were big newspapers in the day, but now they're completely forgotten, and, and it's it's very difficult even now to get access to them. Um, the only way the paper copies don't exist anymore, the only way to get access to them is through the microfilm, and that's a very laborious, time-consuming business to go through those newspapers, but that's something I'm willing to do, and I, I think it's that ability to get right to the contemporary sources that makes for a, a, a book that is very good to read, that's very readable. You mentioned the dialogue. The book really does read like a like a novel with scripted dialogue with the, the back and forth and the court scenes between the lawyers and the witnesses. It's really incredible. Yes, it's quite amazing. And I think there are two things in that. And first of all, none of those quotations are invented. None of them are imagined. I checked those. Every single quotation is taken from the newspaper accounts. Um, and I think one of the things about the book is that it reflects the way that the newspapers would report all of this stuff verbatim. I mean, they would just literally publish page after page after page of verbatim testimony from the trials, which is which is something that doesn't happen now. You don't get that in the newspapers, and and so therefore you can go to that testimony. You can then reproduce. You have to be selective, of course, because you can't just just reproduce all the testimony. But you can once you've figured out and teased out the most important parts of the testimony, you can then create. Uh, a dramatic courtroom scene with all the descriptions of the various witnesses and descriptions of the audience and, and include within that 
the quotations that the various lawyers and the people test. And the reason we know about the rape, of course, is because in the first trial, Evelyn Nesbitt was the was the principal witness. Because what she's doing is she's her husband Harry has killed Stanford White. Stanford White is no longer around to defend his reputation, so she comes into court and testifies about this rape. But obviously, there's no the rape occurred five years before the trial. There's no corroboration. There were obviously no other witnesses. There's no other evidence. Everything depends 100% on her testimony. So the question that I raise, so so it, everything depends upon her. She's the complete crux of the of the defense. You know, when reading the book, I couldn't help but think about the current Me Too movement and how 100 years later, we're still kind of talking about the same same stories and the same kind of scandals. Yes, and that's that's a very good point and a very interesting point. And I think there's a couple of things to say about that to compare 100 years ago to the present circumstance. Um, the first is that the state legislature, the New York State legislature, had um, passed a series of laws a few years before the rape occurred. And one of them was to raise the age of consent, unbelievably, the age of consent before, I think, 1895 was only 10 years old. After 1895, the state legislature raised it to 16. There's a kind of, it wasn't, it's not 100% clear if Evelyn Nesbitt was 15 or whether she was 16 when the rape occurred because she gave different birth dates. I came down to say she was 16, but nevertheless, Stanford White was, if he had been, if he had been prosecuted, then he would have faced about 20 years uh, sentence. And that would have been most likely in Sing Sing prison, which was, it's an unpleasant place right now in 2018, but it would have been, it was awful 120 years ago, 110 years ago, whatever it is. It was just a nightmare place. And it's very, it's, uh, one wonders if you could survive 20 years in Sing Sing prison in 1901. The other thing about to compare the past with the present is the, the public reaction to Harry Thor. He kills the person who raped his wife, public response was overwhelmingly in his favor in the sense that he claimed in the first trial that he was justified in killing Stanford White. And public sympathy was totally with him, totally saying, yes, this was the best thing to do. This was this way. He benefited humanity, which is what Thor said. He said, why are you, why are you prosecuting me? What I did was a benefit for humanity. So it's very so so the the comparison I guess would be that if someone had if Harvey Weinstein with all the things he'd done imagine if someone assassinated Harvey Weinstein you know now I think public response would not be this is a wonderful thing that you did and you benefited mankind so there is a difference in that sense and I think that the difference reflects the the greater reliance we have now in 2018 on law enforcement, that we have the belief, perhaps it's not 100% warranted 
because, you know, a lot of this stuff went on and nobody took action. But we have a belief in 2018 that eventually people will be brought to justice. I think there was less of a belief in 1901, and that's why it seemed to be more justifiable that Thor would uh, take the action that he did. And over the years, uh, her story has been doubted and, and, you know, they've they've tried to disparage her, her reputation based on her testimony. Will we ever know if she was really telling the truth? Was she the real victim here? And she was a victim, I guess, in all aspects of her life, whether it was the men in her life, her mother, or even her mother-in-law. Will we ever know? Yeah. Well, let me first go to the first point you raised, because this is, again, a very interesting point that you made. And that is the reputation of Stanford White and the reputation of Evelyn Nesbitt. And what I found, I mean, when I started working on this, I would repeatedly come across the description of the seduction of Evelyn Nesbitt by Stanford White. And I said, there is no way I can have that word in my book. How could it possibly be a seduction when someone drugs a young girl and then rapes her while she's unconscious? That's such a grotesque violation of an individual. So I insisted everywhere and everywhere I insist now that it should not be described as seduction, it should be rape. But I was curious to know why, how did it first come to be described as a seduction? And the answer really lies in people who wrote about Stanford White in the 1950s. They were trying to rehabilitate his reputation as an architect. And so therefore this description of a seduction begins to creep in, and a number of authors describe it that way. The second point you raised, which is her reputation, I just find it extraordinary that so many writers have somehow tried to blame her or tried to say she was somehow responsible for what happened. She was 16 years old. Stanford White was 47. Harry Thor was 31. 16. And somehow, and in one book, for example, there's even a description of her as a prostitute. There's absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever. So what I tried to do in my book was try to be fair, you know, is try to say, look, what is the evidence? Uh, not to make judgments in that sense, because I think that the readers of my book have enough sense that they can make their own judgments on the basis of what I write. So, but in any case, I, I say I try to portray Evelyn Nesbitt and give her dignity and respect and say this is a young girl who faced a, a terrible, terrible thing at the age of 16 and then to be caught up in this whirlwind of negative publicity. And, and the last point I would make about her is that to, I raise the question in the book as how was she manipulated? And the answer is yes. Whichever way you look at it, I mean, suppose she, and I'm just putting this out as a hypothetical suppose, but was her testimony truthful in the trial? And it might not have been truthful because she might have been manipulated. She was only 20 years old when the first trial happened. Was she manipulated by Thor's lawyers, who were very high-powered lawyers? They were being paid a lot of money. She was very impressionable. And was she manipulated in perjuring herself at the trial? There is no way to know that. And therefore, there's no way for us to know whether, in fact, the rape occurred. I I think one of the things that says, yes, it did occur, is because there was a second trial. And in the second trial, she repeated her testimony, and it was 
exactly the same. She made no mistakes. And if you lie and a year goes past, it's very difficult to repeat the exact same account without tripping yourself up. The thing that argues against the rape, on the other hand, is the fact that she made a mistake in the first trial. And she said that she had posed for photographs in the studio, in a photograph studio, and the following night she went to Stanford White's apartment. The district attorney then found out the date when she went to that photographic studio. And he's then said to the press, I could establish an alibi for Stanford White based upon, I know what he was doing on the night when supposedly he raped Evelyn Nesbitt. He was actually had a private dinner party with his wife and some friends. So the evidence is is very difficult. It's almost impossible. It, in fact, it is impossible to come to any conclusion. And there is no way that we can interview any of the people involved. And so it's it's always going to be a question mark that hangs over the whole the whole episode. All these years later, it's still such a fascinating story. It is indeed. It's an extraordinary story. And, um, and of course, we haven't even really touched upon what happened subsequent to Harry Thor because he, um, he was found. Uh, the, the first trial was a hung jury. The second trial was um, the jury found him not guilty by reason of insanity. He ends up in the Matawan State Hospital for the criminal insane, which is another unpleasant place to be with lots of criminals um, living very living in the same building as Harry Thor. Harry Thor thinks he's perfectly sane, and he spends five years trying to get out of the asylum legally. He doesn't try attempt to escape for five years because he says he doesn't want to live the life of a fugitive. And he thinks his lawyers can get him out legally, but they can't. They don't do it. And eventually he escapes from the asylum. He then a fast car takes him and drives him up to Canada. And he's in Canada. He's hoping to get either back to Pittsburgh or to get to England. But he's caught, and um, and Canada now has a problem, which they realize very clearly, because um, Thor has very powerful lawyers who all troop up to Canada, and they start appealing through the Canadian courts, and so the Canadian, and they start appealing on the basis that the immigration laws of Canada are not constitutional. So Canada realizes it has a huge problem on its hands because they don't want their courts tied up for years and years and years. So um, very early one morning, the Canadian immigration officials burst into Thor's bedroom. They grab him, they put his clothes on, they hustle him down to a waiting car, and they drive him back across the border into the United States. And they literally kick him out of the car. And he's stuck in the middle. He's stuck in the middle of the road, early morning, not not having his wallet, and eventually he gets to he's, he he ends up in New Hampshire, and New York extradites him back to back to New York. So it's a whole another second act in this story, and uh, it's just extraordinarily complicated and extraordinarily dramatic. And in the end, for him, it's it, it. There's a lesson there that that people make arguments about in this day and age is that his 
family's money is what ends up getting him off. And a lot of people will argue that hasn't changed in this era of the criminal justice system either. Yes. I mean, if you have unlimited amounts of money, you can hire the best lawyers. Probably Harry Thor hired too many lawyers. In the first trial, he had six lawyers and they were all squabbling amongst themselves as to which lawyer should make the major speech. But you hire the best lawyers, you hire the best psychiatrists, and they're going to do everything they can to justify their huge fees. And and he just just persisted and persisted and persisted. Year after year, he would, even when he was in the asylum, he would just file appeal after appeal after appeal, which I couldn't include in the book because then the book becomes impossibly complicated and becomes a little bit tedious. And in fact, to give you an example, what happened was that um, the Thor family, even though they were worth at least $12 million in $1,900, were very tight-fisted and they wouldn't pay the lawyers, they wouldn't pay the fees promptly. And so sometimes the lawyers would take the family to court for their fees. And when this went into court, all sorts of other details came out, which the district attorney then used to prosecute the lawyers. And several of the lawyers subsequently were ended up in prison for perjury and for bribing witnesses and so on and so forth. And I, it was impossible to include all that detail in my book because then it would have just been such tangle and um, so, but you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, I th- it's it's uh, very clear that if you have unlimited amounts of money to defend yourself, then you have a huge advantage over someone who relies upon, uh, for example, public defenders. The book is called The Girl in the Velvet Swing, Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century. Simon Botts, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about it. Well, thank you very much for having me. That was a very enjoyable talk. So as I mentioned, we're marking a year of podcast this week. And now I just want to take the time to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for following us on Twitter at WCBS 880 Books. Here's to having our story continue.